please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as I've mentioned before, one of, my, one of my favorite jobs when I was going through seminary was uh, to be uh, as a security guard, which is kind of, was kind of more like Barney Fife security guard, but uh, it was a great job. Got to study a lot. And uh, one of the office buildings that I guarded, so to speak, was up in Addison. It was 15 stories. Had a, the whole center was an atrium, so it went all the way up. And uh, I, had to, I had to walk all 15 floors in all offices multiple times every night. And I had to uh, open the doors, walk in, make sure everything's turned off. And, you know, after I'd done that like several hundred times, I thought, this is, this is a little boring. I kind of need to, to amp up the challenge a little bit. And so, you know, as I mentioned, what I did as my, my challenge is I did the whole thing in the dark, right? I, I walked all 15 floors, every office in the dark. So, you know, just kind of forced myself to memorize where everything was. Problem was, every once in a while, somebody would, you know, just move a desk a little bit or they'd leave a trash can out, right? And I'd stumble over it or fall over it. Uh, and then I also noticed that just every once in a while, not very often, but every so often I'd be walking through and all of a sudden I would just feel this incredible fear. I don't know where it came from. You know, there couldn't be anybody in the office. I mean, nobody had passed my desk. I'd opened the door before and unlocked it and locked it. But I just had this fear come over me. And, um, you know, I realized there's a real simple solution. I just turn on the light. <laughs> just, just flip on the light and you're not going to bump into desks. You're not going to trip over trash cans. You're not going to worry about somebody jumping out of the corner. Just... Just turn on the light. I was thinking about um, that analogy this week as I was reading the passage. I was thinking about us as a church. Because my fear is that uh, not just this church, but the church in general, that we've grown really accustomed to the dark. And it doesn't really, it doesn't shock us, um, maybe like it used to or maybe like it should. Because it's all around us. And, you know, none of us would deny the culture is dark. There's darkness there. But it doesn't, just doesn't grip us and shock us. You know how when you're, you're outside in a really bright day and you step into a room that's completely dark, it's just it's a little unsettling and unnerving. You're disoriented. And I think sometimes we live in this culture and we, we, we don't feel that any longer. It's more like being in a restaurant in the evening and they've just kind of slowly turned the lights down on you and it just feels normal. Your eyes adjust and you're just kind of okay with that. But we shouldn't be, church. Right? We're called to be the light of the world, but we can't really be the light of the world if we're not really startled by the darkness and, and surprised and a bit, bit unnerved and understand that we're called really to live very, very differently. So chapter 5, Paul is going to encourage us, the church, to live out the light that we are in Christ. Right? So I want us to, in a sense, really try to listen to the voice of the Spirit and see if maybe the Spirit can awaken us again in a fresh way to both the darkness around us and our calling to be light in the world. All right? So let's read in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light." So 
one word, in a sense, really ties together all of the last several messages that we've gone through, and that is the word walk. All right, chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks about all of the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ. Beginning in chapter 4, he begins to talk about our, our walk. How should we live as those who are so wealthy in Jesus Christ? How should we walk? How should we conduct our lives? Or based upon all of these riches that we have in Christ, what are our responsibilities? And he said, walk. Literally, walk in love and walk in light. Walk in love, he says, because you are beloved children. Walk in love because you are beloved. Same word that the father uses of his only begotten son. This is my beloved son. You know, in classical Greek literature, that was applied to an only son, right? Or an only child. In other words, Paul is saying all of the love that God has as if you were his only child, he has poured out upon you. And since God is infinite in his capacities, he can love each and every single one of us as if we were an only child. Walk in love because you are beloved children. Paul says specifically what it means to walk in love is to imitate God. Imagine that. Imitate God, right? Live like God. What does that mean to imitate our Heavenly Father? Well, at its essence, it means that we are people who give, not people who take. To love someone else means that what I'm more interested in is your well-being and not my own. And so I give and I give and I give. And I can do that because I'm loved as if I'm the only child. I'm filled up to overflowing. And so in each of my relationships, I don't need to come to these in order to receive. I don't have to come as one who takes. I can come as one who gives. And so as Buck laid out last week, there there are these contrasts where you, you take off the old man who is the one who takes and takes and takes. Instead, you put on the new man who is one who gives and gives and gives. Walk in love because you are beloved. Because all of the riches of the blessings that heaven has to offer are yours in Jesus Christ. Therefore, in each and every relationship, you can be dominated not by greed or by taking, but by love. And that's what it looks like to walk as your father walks. And he turns the metaphor slightly and he says, walk also in light because you're children of light. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Notice both of these metaphors are based upon the family. Or you, you are loved as if you're the only child. And your family is not a family of darkness. It's a family of light. So live as if you are one who walks in light. Well, what, what, is, what does Paul mean by light? It's a metaphor, right? And what's interesting is in the New Testament, the word light is rarely used of literal light. It's almost always used figuratively. Of light, right? It, it's not often used of, of the sun or reflection of the moon or stars. It's used of figurative light that is truth. Right? Or true truth, absolute truth. It's one of John's favorite metaphors. In John chapter 8, he quotes Jesus as saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light which is life. Light is truth. It's absolute truth. It's embodied in Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, you not just have truth, but you have truth that leads you to life. This is what life is all about. God says, I, I want you to imitate me because life is in me. I want you to, to be so filled up with me that in all of your relationships, you're one who gives and gives because that's how I interact with you rather than as one who takes. And I want you to experience all that life has to offer by walking in the light, which is life, which is Jesus. And now he's going to take that metaphor... And he's going to extend it through the rest of the chapter. 
And the challenge that Paul is going to put in front of us is simply this. Are we walking as children of light? Or are we, who are children of light, walking according to the darkness? In other words, if we're called to be the light of the world, are we actually shining brightly? Or are we really just kind of blending in with the darkness of the world? Read with me again verse 3. Paul says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul says, Run. Run from the darkness. Paul's not saying that that genuine believers can't do these kinds of sins. He's saying genuine believers shouldn't do these kinds of sins. Why? He says because it's not not proper or it's not fitting. And that word for fitting means to uh, make a point of connection. Right? They, They naturally fit together. And he says, actually, these things don't fit together. These kinds of things are totally and totally inconsistent with your identity in Jesus Christ as a beloved child, as a child of light. They don't fit. They're not proper. They're inconsistent. So don't live this way. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Interestingly, that first word partnership is the word from which we get symphony. It says the, the notes don't blend, right? If, if you are living in darkness, your life is noisy. It's a cacophony. It's not harmonious. It doesn't fit together. Fellowship is the word koinonia, in common. You don't actually have something in common. It just, it just doesn't fit. It's not that you couldn't do these things, but you shouldn't because they're not appropriate. Now, let me illustrate. Um, first mission trip I went on was um, summer after my freshman year, and I went to, uh, to Guatemala. And a lot of things really kind of stand out because it was my first trip overseas. But one thing in particular, the, the missionary told a story about this young missionary couple who had just arrived on the field, and they're really struggling to learn the language. They'd never studied another language before, and they're really wrestling, they're having a hard time. So they hired a lady to come in and take care of the kids and clean the house so that they could focus on language. So one day, the wife was about to leave. She was going to go work with her language tutor, and she said to and when she said, I want you to clean the house while I'm gone. Specifically, I want you to clean all of the walls with soap and water. Right? Clean everything with soap and water. Get it all clean with soap and water. And the woman said, soap and water? Well, actually, the missionary was trying out her new Spanish. And she said, I want you to clean all of the walls with sopa. So those of you who know a little bit of Spanish know where I'm going with this. The cleaning lady said, no, not, not sopa. She said, yes, sopa. No, no, not, not sopa. She said, yes, clean the walls with sopa, which means soup. Right, so clean the walls with soup. So she left, she went to her language tutor, she came back, and uh, there was chicken noodle soup all over the walls, right? There was just a, a, the connection, just it didn't happen. And Paul is saying, there's a, there's a misconnection. If you are walking in darkness as a child of light, your life will not be harmonious. It will not be bright and beautiful. Darkness is inappropriate for a child of light. So he says, therefore, do not even name these things among you. Why? Because God is light. 
And in him there is no darkness at all. Chapter 5, verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but instead giving of thanks. He says, don't even name. It's kind of ironic, right? He says, don't name these things I'm about to name. <laughs> but that's, that's not what he means. He's saying, don't give approval to these things. And he lists three uh, sins of the heart, so to speak. Immorality, any form of sexuality or impurity or greed, that longing for more. These are sins of the heart. And then three sins of the tongue. So filthiness, silly talk, obscenity, coarse jesting. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, don't, don't give approval to these things. Don't, don't feel like these things are okay because they're completely inconsistent. And how can you shine its light in the world if your heart is sharing that darkness or if your speech is reflecting that darkness? And he goes on, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you formerly were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't name these things. He says, don't be partakers. To be a partaker has this connotation of uh, this is no longer your team, right? This is, this is no longer, these aren't your people, in a sense, any longer. Remember when Jesus' family came to rescue him because he seemed so insane? And they say, your mother and your brother, they're outside. He's outside, they're, they're wanting you to come out. And he looks around, he says, well, who's my mother and my brother? My sister? Those who do the will of God. This, this association is, is stronger even than this biological association. And when you are taken out of darkness into light, these relationships of darkness, they're not as close as these new relationships in a sense that should form. Now, should you abandon all of these? Absolutely not. These, these are a part of, the, of God's gift to you for you to shine in this place. But I'm saying the fundamental nature of these relationships has changed. There's a connection that's been broken. And now, as you enter into these relationships, you are trying to bring Jesus. But you have to form a new, in a sense, set of partakers. A new family is, is built for you. Paul says, those associations need to change. Do not even be partakers with them. Why? Because he says, all that is in that world, God, God hates all of that rebellion against him. So don't live that way because it's displeasing to the Lord. I think sometimes it's, it's difficult for us to grasp this, um, this concept of, of God our Father, that he can, on the one hand, completely and utterly love us as we are. Right? God can't love you more. He's given you all of his love. You are beloved. You're, you're loved as if you're the only child. All of God's love that he has to offer, you possess, and you can actually never lose it. Now, that is true, and at the same time, you may be living like the world, and that really displeases God. And both of those can be true. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that because our, our concept of, of fatherhood gets so skewed by our own families, by our own culture. We can't imagine a father who could completely and unconditionally love us and then also at times be really dis, displeased in it with us. And both of these things can be true. But really, you know, that's what the gospel does for us. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, that debt of sin is removed completely and you're part of the family of God. 
And in a sense, he pays even more attention now to how you live. Is it consistent with the family? I'm, I'm more concerned, in a sense, with my kids' behavior than with your kids' behavior because they're mine. Right? There's, a, there's a closeness in that relationship that I, don't, I really just don't possess with other children because I love them. <laughs> because I love them and I want God's absolute best for them. Now, I, I happen to be blessed that I got to experience this as a, as a kid. My, my parents loved me unconditionally. I never wondered if they, they loved me. But I also knew at times they weren't pleased with me. When they weren't pleased with me, I didn't doubt that they loved me. You know, I, I knew that. Uh, one particular illustration that happened actually multiple times was uh, with my dad's tools. Right, my dad uh, is a very mechanical kind of guy, and he had lots of really cool tools that I wanted to use. He actually, uh, when we were little, one of the ways he... Uh, supported our family and got himself through school, was working for Boeing, their tool and die shop. So he had some really interesting tools. And so he taught me what every tool was for and how to use those tools. And I had permission to use them as long as I used them according to their purpose and if I put them back. But I didn't. I didn't know. I mean, and again, this is an illustration that actually had multiple occurrences. I didn't always put them back. And so my dad would be working on a project. He'd go to his toolbox and his tool wasn't there. And since the only two people who used his tools were my dad and myself. It was really obvious because my dad always puts everything back. It's just my dad's nature, if you know him. And so guess who was to blame? My dad would walk in the house and he would say, Brian, I don't love you any longer. No, he didn't say that. He, he never said that. He said, where is my hammer? Where did you have it last? Where did you leave it? And, you know, then we'd go look in the woods for his hammer or whatever. You know, I just... I knew he loved me, and I knew also very clearly that he was not happy at all with my behavior in that moment. Part of it's because he wanted that tool, but part of it was because he wanted to shape me to become a responsible man. And part of that is putting things back. So he loved me. And that's your heavenly father, people. can't love you anymore. He loves you absolutely and completely. And he wants what is best for you. So he says, do not be partakers with them. Verse 11, do not even participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Because it's disgraceful even to speak about the things which are done by them in secret. That word for unfruitful, it's actually used back in chapter 4, verse 29, let no no unwholesome or unfruitful word proceed from your mouth, and it's used of rotting fruit. Your life doesn't smell sweet. Your life is not harmonious. It's not a symphony. And God wants something more beautiful for you, so he corrects, right? He corrects, and he rebukes, and he challenges. I love this statement by C.S. Lewis. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so what God wants to remove from our lives is not good things, but stinky things, smelly things, unharmonious things, so that our lives can be beautiful. Therefore, do not be partakers in these things. Instead, verse 13, he says, all these things will become visible when exposed by the light. 
Because everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake, sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And church, I, I do believe that for some of us, what God's spirit is trying to speak into our lives right now is, yeah, there's darkness all around you. It doesn't shock you anymore. Instead, what's happened is it's kind of seeped into your life a little bit. And you, maybe you're not even participating or maybe you're just participating a little bit or maybe you're just thinking about it. Maybe you're just longing for it. And the Spirit of God is shining a bright light into some of these hidden recesses of your heart and saying, let's, let's expose that darkness because it destroys you. And I love you. So I can't leave you alone. Right? And Paul presses the argument uh, even further, read again verse 11. He says, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead uh, even expose them. Right? Which, which means um, rep- rep- reprove them or rebuke them or expose them, bring them to light. And he's not talking about exposing the darkness of the world. He's talking about exposing the darkness here or in here. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul wrote there, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge, judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. In other words, Paul says, I'm just talking to you. Yeah, the world's really dark, and I don't need you to write a blog about that today. I want you to, just, I want you to let the Spirit of God examine here. And I want you to let the Spirit of God examine here. Reprove it. Rebuke it. Expose it. Call it out. Church, that's an obligation that we have for one another. Do you realize that? In love, right? Speak the truth in love. But speak the truth. I have discovered through all of my years walking with the Lord that very few Christians have these kinds of relationships where they have friends who will actually ask them really difficult questions. Questions that might expose something going on in their heart. Very few Christians have these kinds of relationships, and these are exactly the kinds of relationships that we need. Just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, uh, he was telling me he, he moved into town recently. He'd lived in another town previously where he had really great accountability. And he said, I, I'm with this group of guys, but they never, we never really actually get around to asking us one another really difficult questions like, how are, how are you loving your wife? Are you loving her like... Christ loved the church. Are you, are you serving her? Are you serving around the home? Are you helping with the kids? Are you short-tempered when you're home? Are you, are you angry? How's your, your ethics at work? Are you making small compromises? How are you doing with, with your roommates, students? Are you serving them? Are you loving them? Are you taking from them? Are you forgiving when they wrong you? How are these relationships? How, how are your ethics? Are you, are you fudging a little bit on, a, on, a, on an exam? Are you Are you making small compromises? Do you have friends who will actually help you expose those things in your life because they will destroy you? Or are you in friendships where people just say, hey, how you doing? All good. Let's move on. But really, a little bit of darkness is is creeping in. You realize, I've never known anyone who went from righteous to massive moral failure. I've ne- in like, like, I've never known anybody. What happens is it's just little compromises. It's just small compromises and never having anyone in your life who along the way will say, wait a second, uh, that really sounded sarcastic. What I just heard you say to your husband, to your wife, to your child, that, that didn't sound like the fruit of the spirit. I didn't, I didn't see kindness. 
And I'm willing to put our relationship at risk to call that out. Paul says, don't even speak about it. That is, don't give approval to it. Instead, when you see it, rebuke it. Church, we are not going to shine brightly in the world if we don't do that for one another. And every single one of you, individually, need those kinds of relationships. And I suspect that the vast majority of you do not have those kinds of relationships. And so I want to challenge you this week to begin to pursue that. If you sit down with a friend with whom you say, man, we are best of friends, but really you have a superficial spiritual relationship and you say, let's do this for one another, you're probably going to freak them out. Push it or move on to the next because you've got to have it. My friend who asked me about this, he said, he said you know, I feel like I really need this, but I don't, am I just a super needy person? Because <laughs> I don't want to be one of those guys. I'm just super needy. I go, no, you're just expressing what should be the normal Christian life. So church, let's get that for ourselves. Verse 14, for this reason it says, wake up. Wake up, sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Turn up the light, Paul says. Uh, those of you who have had uh, kids who've gone through a Lego phase know exactly what Paul is talking about, right? You walk through the room and, you know, um, my son, he didn't, he didn't always pick up every single Lego, sometimes none of the Legos. You know, you're, you're walking through, and it's like, whoa, be really careful, because that tiny little piece of Lego can just destroy an entire night, right? <laughs> just going in to love on my kid and check on him. Ah! Paul says, look out, you're, you're walking through a really dark world, and there are Lego pieces absolutely everywhere. You need to be really careful how you walk. And what you need to do is he said, redeem the time, which means literally buy the time out of slavery. Because your time, if, if you don't pay attention to it, will be enslaved to the darkness. So you need to go and pay that purchase price. You need to redeem it. You need to live wisely. He says, because you want to know what the will of God is, don't you? You want to understand what the good and perfect will of God is for you, don't you? Don't you believe that what God actually has lined up for your life is, is beautiful and, and best? Don't you want to know that? Of course you do. And you can say, yes, amen, please, Paul, tell us more, right? And he's going to. Here it is. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine because that is dissipation or reckless living, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So Spirit-filled life is the will of God for you. Now, I don't think that Paul's main concern in the Ephesian church was drunkenness. I think he's using it as a metaphor. Because what happens to a person when they're drunk? Right? No, no one, nobody in here, right? I'm not, you know, because we're the church. I'm just saying, when your friend actually experienced this at one point, <laughs> what happened? Well, the alcohol affects everything, right? The entire being. Certainly it affects the body, right? You, you, can't, you can't walk straight, so there's a physical effect. But also reasoning, right? Wisdom. Uh, emotions, anger, or sorrow, things get extreme, right? Every, everything in the person is affected. And Paul's using that as a metaphor. Instead, he says, now, be entirely affected by the Spirit. 
your mind, what you think about, your reasoning, your emotions, even your body, where you take it, let those things be controlled by the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means the Spirit is under control of everything about you. That's God's will for your life. Now, we don't often talk about the Holy Spirit. We spend a lot of time talking about God our Father, God the Son, because they're a little easier to understand, right? The Spirit's kind of mysterious. Father, he's in charge of everything. He tells everyone what to do, and the Son goes, and he was crucified for us and raised from the dead. He's going to come back and he's going to rule forever. But the Spirit, what exactly does the Spirit do? And so I want to take an opportunity, a moment, since the Spirit is alluded to in Ephesians 5, just to talk about the Spirit. And we're not going to go back into the Old Testament and talk about Spirit's role in creation or in giving us the Word, but we're going to do a five-minute pneumatology lesson, okay? So I'm going to give you eight things that the Spirit of God does for us now, church. First is this. The Spirit of God convicts of sin. John 16. And he, that is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, and he has, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What is the Spirit's job? Well, one of his jobs is this. He, he awakens the conscience in people so that they can no longer feel good about sin. Spirit brings conviction. Second, the Spirit regenerates. Titus 3, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Spirit is the one who awakens faith in us and causes us to be born again. That is, taken out of a family that is dark and death and into a family that is light and life. He regenerates us or causes us to be born again. That's the work of the Spirit. Third, the Spirit baptizes us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So what he's talking about here is not, is not water baptism that we do on a Sunday morning. He's talking about spiritual baptism, which is similar in a sense to regeneration, but it's, it's this moment of the spirit taking you out of one family and putting you into Christ, right? So spiritual baptism is being placed into Christ So now when God looks at you as one who is regenerated, he sees all of the history and accomplishments of Christ on your behalf, right? So you share in his death to sin and you share in his resurrection to new life. You are identified with Christ. So baptism literally means identification with. Spiritual baptism is the spirit identifying you with Jesus. So that's why we do water baptism as a symbol of spiritual baptism. It's why we do immersion baptism. Because it's a symbol that best reflects what happened to us spiritually, right? You were buried with Christ, so you go all the way under the water because you completely died with Christ. The penalty of your sin is completely paid. And then we don't leave you under the water, right? We lift you up because you are raised up to new life in Christ. His death is yours. His resurrection is yours. And when you stand in the water, you go under the water, you're raised up out of the water. You are proclaiming, this is who I am. God's Spirit has already done this to me. I'm identifying myself with Jesus Christ because the Spirit identified me with Jesus Christ. That's a symbol of the spiritual reality, and that's what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit indwells us. Romans 8, verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, you're brought to life. 
out of death into life. You're regenerated. You are indwelled by the Spirit. That is, you can't get more of the Spirit than you already have. The question that we'll talk about in a moment is, does the Spirit have all of you? But you have all of the Spirit that you can ever have, and it can never be removed from you. Why? Because the Spirit has sealed you over. Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The moment you believe God's Spirit indwells you permanently and forever, guaranteed by the fact that you are sealed over by the Spirit. You can't break that seal. And no one else around you can break that seal. And Satan can't break that seal. You belong to God. Sealed by the Spirit. Spirit illuminates. 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So the best way to read your Bible is to first open it up and pray, God, let your spirit speak. Let, let, let the ink not just be black on a white page, but let it come to life so I understand not just what does it mean, but what's the significance for me and for my life. And God says, happy to do that. That's why I place my spirit within you to bring illumination or light or truth to your heart and to your mind. The spirit encourages John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that, is the, uh, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. That word for helper is the word paraclete. It means literally one who's called alongside. Okay, Paraclesis, called alongside or one who encourages when you are fearful or frustrated or angry or doubtful or confused. It is the spirit of God who breathes, breathes, uh, breathes truth and courage into your hearts and into your minds. And then eight, the Spirit fills. Probably the most dramatic illustrations of this are at the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. Right? When the Spirit comes in a powerful way, as in a sense he really has never come before, Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. In the Old Testament, this idea was the Spirit came upon people for this specific moment, but then he would leave, he would depart. They might prophesy for a moment, but then the Spirit wasn't indwelling them permanently. Now, in the book of Acts, the Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. He comes upon these believers, and one of the evidences of that is that they begin to speak in languages that they've never known before, but the people all around them know these languages, and they hear the mighty deeds of God. Because the Spirit is now controlling their minds and controlling their tongues and controlling their hearts. Acts chapter 4, it says, When they had prayed, the place they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Right Earlier in that chapter, Peter is filled with the Spirit, and he speaks with boldness in front of the rulers who are going to persecute him. Now the Spirit of God comes upon the entire church to such an extent that the whole building shakes, and I would love to have that moment right now. Because that would be so dramatic for all of us. We'd be, oh, it's undeniable. It doesn't happen every Sunday. And it didn't happen every Sunday in the first century. But it happened on this Sunday. And what happened was they all went out and they began to share their faith. Really. Boldness came upon them. Even though they knew that in sharing their faith, they might lose friendships. Family might reject them. The authorities might persecute them and take their property. They might be beaten. They might lose their lives, and yet they sacrificed and they suffered with joy. With joy and thanksgiving. Peter and John, the first time they were imprisoned and beaten, they just sat up all night and said, we better sing. we got to sing. 
And they gave of their time to one another. They gave of their money freely, not begrudgingly, but joyfully, because some had less and some had more. And they said, let us give. Why? Because to walk in love means that I'm more concerned about your well-being than my own. I'm a giver, not a taker. They were filled with the Spirit to such an extent that they imitated God, which is one who gives. And so they gave of everything that they had because the Spirit of God was in control of them. How does this happen, people? Verse 18. Don't be controlled by anything else. Don't be controlled by wine. That's just reckless. That's living that's out of control. It's living that's inconsistent with who you are. But instead, be filled or be controlled by the Spirit of God. How? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even to the Father. How are we filled with the Spirit? Well, we're filled with the Spirit when we help one another be filled with the Spirit. Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That is, what is the natural outflow of a life that is full? Well, just it just overflows, right? Things just come out the top. And we're not dominated by greed and by taking. We're dominated by joy and by giving. Okay, this is, in a sense, it's really just, it's a life of praise. It's not a Sunday and then another Sunday, another Sunday, but it's a continuous experience of life that is a life of praise. Now, for those of you who didn't uh, have the opportunity to be here on the Sunday when uh, we had Bishop Green in here, and he, I got to interview him a little bit, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to those interviews because um, one of the things that is true, it was true when I interviewed him, but it's true in every conversation about him, is the word of God just flows out of him, right? Did you notice that? Right? He just he gets started and then he gets on a roll. Well, that is... Like every conversation, if you have lunch with him or you have coffee with him, just bump into him out around town. He's just going to look intensely and how are things going? Then pretty soon he's just, he's just kind of quoting scripture. And I'm not sure if he even knows that he just drifted into scripture. He called me the other day and we're talking about something and then he just boom, 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 just, just rolling. Why? Because he loves God's word. God's word is in him. And notice what Paul says, be filled. That is You can't do this for yourself, but you're responsible for something. It's like be transformed. That is, let the Spirit have control. Let the Spirit have control. We we had an elder here years ago, Dick Davison. He's with the Lord now. But when Dick would pray, it was just like Bishop Green. He would start to pray, and then all of a sudden, it was just the Word. And then he'd pray another topic, and then all of a sudden, it was the Word. And I remember asking him one time, I said, how do you you memorize Scripture like that? And he said, I really can't. He said, I'm terrible at Scripture memory. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Every conversation, every prayer, it's just there. He said, well, I, I, just, I just read it so much, I guess. So when he said he couldn't memorize it, I don't think he knew every reference because it just becomes so much a part of who he was because he had surrendered, right? This is, this is where spiritual filling begins like this. It begins with a confession. God's spirit illuminates, right? Shines a light in some of those dark corners and we say, ah, you're right, God. Confession literally means to say the same thing. God says this. I say, I say, yeah, you're right. What you just said is right. We confess. And then we surrender. We, we yield control. And it's a present imperative, which means be filled, and then be filled again, and be filled, and keep being filled, and be filled over and over again. I, one of my really close friends, an older lady, I remember she told me 
one time that every morning she would wake up and she would just lift her hands before the Lord and she would confess to anything, Father, that you need to shine a light on from this previous day. Let me know. And now I give you this day. This is the day that you have made. You've created it for me to walk in your ways. So let my hands be your hands. Let my feet carry me where you want me to go. Let my words speak what you want me to speak. Let me see every interaction, every relationship as you would have me to see it. I have surrendered control. And now I am being filled as I let the word of Christ richly dwell within me, speaking and helping you be filled by letting my speech be with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what he means is simply this. If Sunday morning is your only worship moment, and then you have another moment on the next Sunday evening, you will not experience the power of God's spirit. This is lifestyle. That's why he uses the metaphor, walk according to the spirit. Right? Take your next step, yielded, listening, confessing, not letting small compromises step in. Instead, letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and then being in these relationships where you're speaking truth continually to one another so that the Spirit has control of everything. All right, church, this is, this is our moment to shine. All right, Jesus is the light of the world, and he's left us here to be the light of the world, to reflect, really radiate the beauty of Jesus Christ. But if we live like darkness, we don't shine. And so we have these moments where God says, okay, let me, let me arouse you, let me awaken you again. Let me let my spirit peer deeply and see if there is darkness that needs to be illuminated and removed so that we can be that light of the world, walking according to the spirit. So what I want us to do is uh, just take a few moments quietly before the Lord. And I, I don't know what exactly God's spirit is speaking to you this morning. I do know this, that God's spirit is trying to speak to you. And maybe through a word that I spoke or it may be something directly God's spirit is saying. It may be that you need a moment of confession because something's been pointed out, it may be that it's just a moment of surrender where you're holding on to things that really aren't yours. They're, they belong to God. It's your time. It's your money. It's your skills. They need to be released. Or maybe it's just thanksgiving. Paul says we're always in all things continually giving thanks. Why? Because we're people who are filled up, which is the opposite of greed. We're not these people who take and take. We're the people who give and give. And I just maybe, maybe I need to just remember all of these blessings. So I just want you to take a few moments quietly before the Lord. Let the Spirit speak to you. And then Tim's going to close us in a, a, just a moment of worship together. Okay? So let's take a few moments quietly. Father, I pray that we would this week listen to the voice of your Spirit. I pray that we would be freshly attuned to his voice of conviction and encouragement and exhortation. I pray, Father, that you would help us seek out and find those relationships that will expose darkness and encourage light within us. I pray that we wouldn't be fearful of that, but that we would be bold and courageous. I pray, Father, for us uh, each individually, but also for us as a church, for the church in this community that there would be a brightness and a beauty to us that would draw others to Jesus. And I pray that maybe even this week we would experience in a, in, a, in a fresh and supernatural way that sense of empowerment from your spirit that you've given to us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Be filled with the spirit this week. We'll see you next week.